This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. of Americans are moderately stressed. 75% of Americans are also lonely. More than 33% of us sleep less than six hours a night. In addition, 77% of us use social media daily, and 81% of us own a smartphone. Why are these statistics important? Because loneliness sleep deprivation, social media use, tech use, and even gut imbalance, which the Huffington Post refers to as the modern plague, are all causes and results of stress. Stress is the reason for at least 75% of today's doctor's visits, costing the U.S. billions per year in employee absenteeism, accidents, and illnesses. 9-11, climate change, a historic economic crisis, numerous mass shootings, an inordinate amount of school lockdowns, a foreign attack on our election, a politically divided country, tech-induced anxiety and addiction, and information overload. Since 2000, these unique-to-our-time phenomena have created a petri dish of stress in the U.S., causing a host of emotional and physical ailments. Here's the problem. While the well-researched psychological theory on attachment tells us that secure attachments to each other and to our nation create resilience to stress, our current American culture is creating barriers, not pathways, to human trust and closeness. Valeria interviews Dr. Meg Van Dusen, the author of Stressed in the U.S., 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and More. Dr. Meg Van Dusen received her B.A. in English from Santa Clara University in 1985 and her Ph.D. in Clinical Psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology in Los Angeles in 1992. She has worked with children, adolescents, and adults, both in inpatient and outpatient settings throughout the Los Angeles and Seattle areas. Her knowledge of and passion for attachment theory, mindfulness, interpersonal neurobiology, sleep, and dreams informs her belief that meaningful connection with ourselves and others helps us handle stress. In her review of the literature and interviews with researchers, everyday Americans, and clients, 
she has cultivated a firsthand understanding of how our current American culture is creating barriers to human attachments and therefore weakening our ability to handle the stressors we face today. She believes that the ancient art of mindfulness, the recent research on happiness, and the simplicity of nature can, among other things, help us build resilience and calm during a time when disconnection has us lost in a worried world. Meet Dr. Van Dusen on megvandusen.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Meg Van Dusen. In your own words, who is Dr. Meg Van Dusen? Mm, I like that you asked that question in the third person because there's research on that that shows that we have better perspective on ourselves when we answer it in the third person. Uh, so let's see how I do. Meg Van Dusen is someone who has been fascinated with the intricacies and nuances of relationship and someone who seeks to help people grow and heal by understanding their relationship to themselves, each other, and nature. And I would say Meg Van Dusen is also somebody who really enjoys sitting on a nice California beach, <laughs> um, enjoying good food um, and good friends, um, and music. So your book is titled Stressed in the U.S., 12 Tools to Tackle Anxiety, Loneliness, Tech Addiction, and more. But before we talk about some of the topics in your book, I have these warm-up questions, as I mentioned off-record. The first one for you, Dr. Mag, is what does it mean to be a human being from your perspective? Well, to be a human being means to be present and alive and aware of how our actions affect ourselves and other people. Being human is being connected to anything and everything that's happening in this moment. My follow-up question is the purpose of the human experience. What do you think that is? Well, I really think that life goes better when we understand who our true self is, and we live as authentically as possible. I think our purpose, our individual purpose, falls into place much more easily if we are living true to ourselves, if we are living honestly and authentically. Authenticity, being true to ourselves, it really sounds like the ultimate goal. And I wonder, how do we know when we are there? Is there a destination, a moment in time when we are there with being authentic all the time? Well, you know, I mean, I talk a lot about the gap that exists between our true selves and our false selves. And we have a lot of false self-activity going on these days, basically with social media. Um, you know, social media really promotes a persona. And... Um, you know, I, I look at how to get to the true self by understanding what the false self is. So the false self is 
trying to be something for other people. So trying to meet what you perceive might be expectations of another human being, of a group, of a society, as opposed to um, being honest, open. And the only way to really be honest and open, which includes, you know, the answer of I don't know, is really about releasing judgment, really about dropping judgment. The only thing that drives us to put on personas is the fear of judgment and humiliation. And so if we learn to release judgment, if we learn to be with ourselves and be accepting of ourselves no matter what, then we can be- begin to explore what, who we are and what is true for us. For me, it has been a challenge is the balance between caring and loving others, attaching to them, but at the same time, being authentic enough to care for myself and love myself at the same time. Yes. I, I talk a lot about compassionate boundaries. Yeah. So talk to me for a moment, since we are already um, getting into the topics in your book, <laughs> self-compassion. How do we learn to balance self-compassion and compassion for others? Well, I think the thing that people should know is that to work on oneself um, is automatically has a reverberating effect positively on your relationships with other people. So if you learn to be self-compassionate, and that doesn't mean condoning, it means understanding why you do what you do, And being curious about that instead of critical. So not being critical of yourself, being curious and understanding and always striving to be there for you no matter what, regardless of mistake, um, you know, regardless of anything. Um, when we develop this ability to be self-compassionate, to be there for ourselves no matter what, then we have a greater ability to be present and open to other people. And that includes being able to say no to other people, being able to say, I'm so sorry, I cannot help you out today. I'm needing to take care of myself or I'm needing to, you know, attend a, an important you know, meeting. So that we're, compassion toward other people is not people pleasing. It's understanding the other person's uh, dilemma or situation. Um, it's communicating that understanding. And you may or may not be able to help them in that moment, uh, literally, but communicating the understanding of their suffering or their dilemma is what compassion for other people is. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to release boundaries around things that are important to you for the sake of them. When you say the practice of self-compassion, would that also mean loving ourselves unconditionally? Would that be the same thing in a way? I think it is loving ourselves unconditionally. I, I'm not really sure what you mean by unconditionally, but I guess what I think of in terms of self-compassion goes back to this idea of it's it's not not holding ourselves accountable. So compassion, self-compassion holds us accountable. It's not giving us a free pass to say, look, whatever you do is okay, it's okay, it's okay. Um, not necessarily. You can, you know, we can all hurt other people intentionally or not. 
And, you know, it's about holding oneself accountable, but being understanding, curious about why, perhaps why you did what you did, and helping yourself to course correct with with love. Um, It's forgiving yourself. Um, We cannot go through life without making a mistake. It is inevitable. But mistake always, always allows us the opportunity for growth if we approach ourselves with um, understanding, i.e. compassion. And that's providing safety for ourselves. Um, When we're self-compassionate, we provide a safe space inside ourselves so that we don't even get defensive with ourselves. We don't try to justify an action. We can basically say, yeah, I did that. I made that mistake. And we can say to ourselves, okay, Meg, let's look at why. Let's look at what happened. And it's okay. Let's do what we can to repair it. From your perspective, is there a difference between being calm and being peaceful? Well, when I think of that, I think of being calm um, as more of a biological state. At least that's what comes to my mind, right? So I think of a calm nervous system. I think of the fact that, you know, we might not, if we're calm, we typically don't have uh, stress hormones coursing through our bodies. Um, You know, we might be able to be sitting quietly. We might um, not have our heart racing. So all the physiological signs of stress aren't necessarily present when we're calm, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're at peace. (laughs) Um, And so when I think of being peaceful, I think of acceptance, Um, acceptance of what is. Um, And and sometimes that even means um, acceptance of very difficult circumstances, like what we're all going through now um, with the pandemic. Um, So being at peace is being able to be accepting and to be flexible and adaptable um, because when we're not at peace, we're often fighting against something. Um, uh. So 2020 has been a year of challenges and chains. So my question is, what lessons have you learned from 2020? Mm, Well, I have learned how to adapt. I've had to do all my work via telehealth. (laughs) So just literally, I've learned how to adapt. I've learned how to, Mm -hmm. you know, really strive to make those connections, um, even though it's through a computer. I have also learned a lot, and I think many people around me have as well, about what it really means to um, develop resilience. Um, We have had to be so resilient. It has been both a sprint and a marathon at the same time. And we don't actually know where the finish line is. And and that feels extraordinarily threatening for people. People like to know what's happening in order to feel safe often. And we don't. We don't know what's happening. We still don't know what's going to happen, even though a vaccine is on the horizon. And so that, that forces us to have to find internal ways of uh, creating safety and okayness amidst a turbulent world. We always have to do this, but we have to do it much more so, have had to do it much more so in the last uh, 10 months. And so I have really learned um, even more than I thought because I've, I've been meditating for decades, but I have really learned in these past 10 months the power of that and the necessity of that 
um, as a way to find uh, a place of safety within, um, despite the unpredictable circumstances right now in our world. Um, I've also learned, and even though I touted this a lot in my book, I really, really learned it on a much deeper level, um, the power of connection with our natural world and how important it is. Uh, so many people have had to get their exercise by getting outside and being, you know, in nature more, being with each other more, um, and have really benefited from that because nature does does literally reduce stress hormones in the body. But more important than that, it's the archetypal mother. And we have been living in a really tough, with a really, uh, if we look at attachment theory, difficult father figure at the helm. <laughs> and, um, and so we need a nurturing mother right now. And that is mother nature. Um, it creates a holding environment for us. And, you know, this is not just based on an idea. Studies have shown that nature helps us feel more connected and more connected to something that's bigger than just ourselves. Um, and so that's been a really powerful healing tool um, that I think we've all been more, I, I've hoped that many of us have been more aware of during this pandemic um, and more appreciative of. And I really hope that carries uh, forward um, even after we get a vaccine. And speaking of um, mother, uh, mother earth, mother nature, I have two questions for you that relate to being a female in a human body. What do you love most about being a woman? Mm, well, I, you know, that's, wow, that's a big question. I don't want to be, I want to be careful because I, I don't know what it means from first experience to be a man. I only know theoretically what it might mean to be a man. <laughs> um, and so, you know, what I can say about being a woman is that, I, in fact, I was talking about this the other day with my younger son, um, the, the minute a child is born, we as women have this instinctual um, primal feeling to protect and nurture. And I think, and that's whether we have children or not, I do believe that we are more dialed in to this idea of connectedness and nurturance um, and protectiveness of each other. Um, and I really, I, I love that fact. And I experience that um, in spades with my female friends. And I have many male friends. Um, and I love my men friends. Um, but what I experience with my female friends is this deep intuition about what it means to take care of each other. And, and to me, that, that's, a, that's a gift. And I, I, I enjoy being in that. Have you faced any challenges for being a woman? Well, I mean, you know, I think like almost every woman on the planet can relate to, um, we have been uh, unfortunately uh, quite mistreated and discriminated against and not given equal opportunity in life. Um, we've been, you know, uh, at the mercy of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, it's quite pervasive in, in our world. 
And that has been a challenge. We've been trying to be heard, I think, for a very long time. And I think there's a, a tremendous amount of hope on the horizon. We've just elected our first female vice president and a woman of color, um, which is, I think, a testimony to the fact that um, we are being heard more and and the value of who we are is um, beginning to be taken more seriously, but we still have a long way to go. What is freedom to you these days? What does it mean to be free? Freedom to me is uh, releasing judgment. And uh, I just can't say enough about that. I think that um, whether we're talking about and what I mean by judgment is criticism, criticism of ourselves, criticism of other people. When we are critical of ourselves, um, we are threatening ourselves. Uh, we're creating stress in our bodies. And people do this multiple times a day um, without even realizing it. Um, we're also quite critical of each other. Um, and that creates stress both for us and the other person because we see the other person as the enemy. When we release judgment, again, releasing judgment is not condoning bad behavior. It's being less critical and promoting curiosity and understanding of why people do what they do. But releasing judgment really is the key to releasing anxiety. Oh, I love and that wisdom. The, <laughs> yeah, the, to me, it's the ultimate freedom. It means we can move about the world with a big exhale, you know. What is your understanding and idea of spirituality? You know, we often talk about um, we have the mind, the body, and the spirit. And um, the spiritual world, to me, means our connection with something greater than ourselves. Uh, and I don't have a you know particular definition of that because I think people experience spirituality, in other words, connection with something greater than themselves, uh, via nature, um, via the concept of God, even via meditation. Uh, and so it really is this idea of being connected with something greater than us. Um, and it's not necessarily always something that we can see, but something that uh, really allows us to be held by the divine. And again, the divine um, may for some people be a belief in God and for others be Mother Nature itself. So how did you become a writer and what was the inspiration and also intention of writing your book, Stressed in the U.S.? You know, I started writing, My, I, I remember being seven years old and my parents gave me a colorful pad of paper in my Christmas stocking and I just was in love with this colorful pad of paper and I started writing a journal at the age of seven and I basically never stopped. So I think that's how I became a writer um, um, and I still have those journals and they're just fascinating to go back and read. Um, but that's how I think I started writing. I, I decided to write this book on stress um, and I, ha I, I was an English wit major way back when 
Um, and so I started out being a journalistic writer, but then I switched to psychology and became a psychologist. So I really hadn't written at all since I'd written my dissertation, which was eons ago. But I was noticing that I had a lot to say because not only in my own life, but in the lives of all of my clients, really, um, they were coming into the therapy room, not just talking about their personal stress, but talking about things like mass shootings and global warming and uh, terrorism um, and addiction to their devices and things that felt to me that were now more universal um, stressors, at least in our country, um, and that everybody was suffering from. And so uh, I had always been fascinated in things like sleep and anxiety and loneliness, but it seemed to me that stress was really the driver of all of these things. Stress seemed to be the driver of loneliness. Stress seemed to be the driver of social media addiction. Stress seemed to be the result of social media addiction. It kept coming back to stress. And so I really started to delve into the research on stress and um, look more deeply at you know, all of the components of stress and what we could do about it in a way to help not only my clients, but also, you know, my kids who were teens at the time and super stressed. Uh, it just seemed wrong to me. And so that's what drove me to write the book. Are there different kinds of stress that cause all these uh, imbalances in our lives and our bodies? And the other question is, if there is such a thing as healthy stress that we need actually to be stressed? Yeah, I mean, there's eustress, which is healthy stress, and there's distress. And there's acute stress, and there's chronic stress. And those are kind of the four ways I think about stress. So, you know, we do need a little bit of stress to get ourselves up off the couch and doing something. So it takes a little bit, just a little bit of stress for me to do this interview with you, right? I have to be, uh, I'm sure there's there was a little bit of adrenaline uh, getting going, you know, as we got going on the interview, just because it helps us to be more alert. You know, we need to be alert when we're stressed. You know, it helps with people who need to go on stage and perform. It it helps us achieve goals. It helps us moving. Uh, it helps us to get up and move in a direction toward a goal. But chronic stress is obviously when we and distress. Uh, is when we feel stressed on a regular day, uh, on a regular basis. And this could mean we can be stressed from our own selves um, if we are constantly criticizing ourselves. As I said before, when we criticize ourselves, we're threatening ourselves and creating constant stress within the mind and the body. So stress is really a threat, um, whether it's perceived or real. And um, if it's acute, like a speeding car coming toward us, our stress hormones kick in as they should automatically without thinking, and our muscles get activated, glucose gets sent to the bloodstream and gives us energy uh, to jump away from the speeding car. And that's a good thing. Uh, if it's acute, like uh, having to deal with a critical boss every day, or a child who has to deal with his bully on the playground every day, then we actually have stress hormones that never 
our, our body never resets back to baseline and the stress hormones keep coursing through the body and that creates inflammation in the body and eventually creates disease in the body and is quite damaging to us in a multitude of ways, including anxiety, depression, all kinds of things. I could go on and on about distress. So yeah, there's a difference between eustress, distress, acute stress, and chronic stress. That's very good to know. Um, another question I have is about stress being caused by an unknown uh, or unconscious beliefs or thoughts even. Is that possible that they're just running on the background? Yeah, I think you just defined anxiety, um, you know, because anxiety uh, operates like that. People who are anxious don't necessarily know uh, what it is that they're worried about or the thing that they're worried about might constantly be changing. Absolutely, you can have unconscious, you know, thoughts or um, experiences happening, creating agitation or a constant state of hypervigilance, which is really a response to threat. Uh, you know, it's a stress response and not know why, because you can say, well, gosh, my life's going, you know, it's pretty going pretty well. I'm comfortable. I've got a great job. I've got, got a great relationship. I, you know, I'm not worrying about money. I'm, I'm really okay. I'm healthy. I'm okay. What's but why am I so agitated? And it often has to do with what's going on in the unconscious, which is why therapy is such a great thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, because in therapy, sure. we, we try to help create, you know, raise the unconscious to consciousness and discover why our bodies or our brains might be reacting in a particular way, because we often don't know. And sometimes that has to do with past trauma that's being held in the body. So past trauma, would you say fear to unconscious fears? Unconscious fears, absolutely. There can be a multitude of things our bodies and our brains are responding to. This goes into attachment and in that, you know, if we have a good start in life and we have what's called secure attachment, um, we generally tend to feel like we can handle stress in life. We generally feel safe. If that gets started on the wrong foot and we have uh, one of many different kinds of insecure attachments, we might grapple with what you're describing, which is, you know, sort of a constant state of dis-ease. Um, and that might be linked directly to a malfunctioning hypothalamus-pituitary axis, which is the main uh, stress-regulating system in the body that can um, have not formed uh, well enough um, when we were infants or toddlers or young children because of various traumas that we experienced. So talk to me a bit more, Mag, about the uh, attachment theory. That's a very interesting idea. And I love what you wrote in your book, or oh, it's part of it. Our current American culture is creating barriers, not pathways to human trust and closeness. Talk to me a little bit more about this, why you think that this way. Well, attachment is defined, it is the psychological bond between, originally it was between two people over time. And that could be a healthy bond or an unhealthy bond. So if you have secure attachment, it means that you feel seen, you feel understood, or you at least feel that the other person is attempting to understand you. You feel safe with that other human being. And our 
secure attachments in life are really formed as infants and toddlers. And I go into that in a great length in the book. I could spend hours talking about now, but I won't. What I also talk about in the book is that we can also have secure or insecure attachments within ourselves, and we can have secure or insecure attachments with our nation as we personify nations as father figures or mother figures. We often can refer to our nation as the motherland or the head of our nation as the father of our nation. And so when we don't feel seen or understood by our nation, um, we are also creating what I call insecure attachment. And so what I think has happened over the last couple of decades is that there have been both events in the United States and cultural phenomenon in the United States that have been catering to insecure attachment that have actually been injuring what we may have had uh, as secure attachment and creating insecure attachment, namely things like 9-11, where we'd never had a terrorist attack on our own soil before and created an enormous sense of insecurity. In fact, anxiety and uh, antidepressant medication skyrocketed after 9-11. People didn't sleep well after 9-11. People experienced post-traumatic stress disorder after 9-11, even if you just watched it on television. You know, mass shootings um, have, you know, been events that have been occurring more frequently. Uh, Systemic racism um, is becoming, it's not that it hasn't existed, it's just more visible with video. Um, And it's extremely distressing and extremely threatening. And then there are culture phenomena, like the pervasive use of technology, the pervasive use of social media, which doesn't help us feel safe with each other. We see that we're in competition with each other with social media. Um, Technology actually um, makes it harder to communicate with each other because we're not in the flesh. We're not speaking live. We're often texting. Um, people uh, are misunderstanding one another. People are breaking up with each other over text message. And it breaks down um, you know, the ability to learn how to have intimacy with each other and the, learn- and the ability to feel safe with each other, just to name a few. Unfortunately, Lots of reasons to be stressed and fearful and all that. I do connect stress to fear on so yeah. many levels. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that while the stressors are going up by stressful events, the resilience, our, our secure attachments are decreasing. Yeah. In your book, you present the 12 practices to tackle stress and strengthen attachment. So I have them in front of me. We won't discuss all of them. You have mentioned some of them. Release judgment. This is a very important one. It might be the most important in a way. Eye contact. I love all of them. But talk to me a bit more about the practice of mindfulness and meditation. Mindfulness is so powerful in so many ways. Um, the core concept of mindfulness is non-judgmental, compassionate awareness in the present moment. Well, this can also be understood as attunement, which is the underlying concept of secure attachment. Attunement is being present and compassionate with another person. And So when we are practicing mindfulness, whether it be via mindfulness meditation 
or just being present while we're eating our food or being present while we're listening to one another like you and I are doing right now, we are actually building secure attachment. So uh, one thing to know about secure attachment is that if if life gets off to a bad start and you develop an insecure attachment, it's not set in stone. You can actually change your attachment style throughout life. And one of the ways that we change attachment style is by mindfully meditating. Um, Because when we mindfully meditate, we are practicing attunement, that core concept of secure attachment, which also helps us with emotion regulation, helps us with cognitive ability, um, sharpening cognitive ability, and it helps us with understanding how to relate to people better. There's so many things, so many benefits of mindfulness. And people often misunderstand mindfulness or shy away from mindfulness because they feel like they don't have time for it. It sounds like meditation or it sounds like some religion or, you know. And it's really not. It's, it's, we can, what I say in the book is you can just start by practicing mindfulness by stopping for 60 seconds, putting down the device, and focusing on your breathing, just focusing on the air that's moving in and out of the nostrils, just paying attention to the sensations. You can practice mindfulness by just sit, sitting for a minute, taking a break from your computer, and noticing the sensations in the body. You can practice mindfulness by sitting outside on your front porch and looking up at the sky and noticing the variations in the color or the sounds around you. So there are many ways to practice mindfulness because it's simply non-judgmental, compassionate awareness in the present moment. It's paying attention without judgment. And it is, it sounds so simple, but it has profound effects on the brain and the body. It decreases cortisol in the body. It increases, it decreases anxiety. It decreases depression. This is, this is all based on, you know, a plethora of research out there. Um, it helps people uh, regulate their emotion. Um, it helps people with empathy. Uh, and again, it promotes secure attachment, decreases blood pressure, decreases uh, inflammatory cytokines in the body, which, you know, decreases, uh, increases our health. Yeah, I wonder why it's so challenging for us to do that, to be present. Yeah, I think in this nation, you know, we are really taught that um, achievement and acquiring things is what it means to be valuable. And so we are running after things. We are chasing the money fame dragon a lot, unfortunately. And we're also, and I don't want to just blame ourselves for this. We're also, we've experienced a a shrinking middle class and and we have to work a lot. A lot of people have to work a lot just in order to make ends meet. And so people are running between their jobs and raising kids and, and whatnot and have gotten used to that. And the nervous system stays activated and then forgets how to calm down. There's another section that you talk about mindfulness in government. That would be an interesting idea to start with. Mm-hmm. Having the entire nation education system to teach and educate us on how to stay present. And yeah, I know who we are, not just who, but what we are. 
So we are almost at the end. I have a few more questions for you. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? You know, I just really want to say that um, I think people are really trying hard in life to be happy. And um, I think it's not as hard as we think it is. And that if we just take the chance of slowing down, if I talk about pausing, if we just pause, and the pandemic has actually caused us to have to do this, if we just pause for a minute, several times throughout the day, and take in the sounds around us, ask ourselves, how are you doing? Just address yourself by your name. You know, Meg, how are you doing right now? If we just do that simple thing, we can start to tune in. We can start the process of building secure attachment and we can make life go better. Thank you so much for your wisdom, Dr. Meg. Your message, your peaceful presence. It's very peaceful. That reminded me of uh, asking you about um, meditation audio. Do you have them? Have you produced any? You know, I have produced some some meditations. I don't have them out yet on the internet, but um, that is in the works. Two more questions for you, the final ones. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Well, you know, I'm not immune to getting caught up in the rat race of American society. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I would probably um, put down my devices, um, you know, much more than I do. And um, I would connect more with uh, the people um, that I cherish so much in my life um, with – my kids and my husband and my friends and actually with strangers too, with people walking down the street, I would just, um, really, um, really, really connect more. And if I could, I would travel, um, as much as part possible because I think our world is so rich and we have so much to learn from each other and from other cultures around the world. And I would just want to get to know as many people as possible and and be connected to them. What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? That mistakes are inevitable, uh, but they always present opportunity for growth. And I'm talking even the really bad ones. Um, so we have to just know that mistakes are inevitable. People put too much pressure on themselves to be perfect. I also believe that people can change and that change can happen at any moment like this one. We can choose to step into this moment and make a change and it's possible. Anybody can change. I also believe that compassion is the greatest healer, whether it's self-compassion or compassion for each other or compassion for our planet. It's the greatest healer. Thank you so much again for your uh, profound wisdom, your beautiful, calming, peaceful presence, your work, your mission. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? First of all, thank you for having me, Valerie. I really appreciate talking with you, and your podcast is just beautiful. You can find me, the easiest way is on my professional website, which is just megvandusen.com. That's M-E-G, 
V-A-N-D-E-U-S-E-N.com. There'll be a link to my book there and a link to my blog, which is called Sight on Stress, and other information about me. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Mac. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Meg Van Dusen and her work, please visit megvandusen.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.